How many of you saw the spelling bee recently, the national spelling bee? The runner-up, the first runner-up to the national spelling bee this year missed the word. Let's see if I can even pronounce it. Bewutsteinslagen. It sounds like a German word. Maybe Tracy could decipher it for us. I think I could have gotten that one. I could have spelled it. (laughs) But what was surprising to me wasn't that word that knocked the second place person out, but the word that won the spelling bee. It was koinonia. Won the spelling bee. What? That's so simple, right? Simple for us who are Christians. One woman tweeted that if you were a Christian girl growing up in the 90s, you knew how to spell the word koinonia because you had a crush on the drummer of a band by that name. We Christians name everything koinonia, right? Koinonia. But do we know what it means? We do know how to spell it probably. And we probably know the definition of koinonia. We've probably heard it many times. It refers to our fellowship with one another, our partnership with one another, our participation in life with one another. But does that mean we really know what it means? Do we know what koinonia is in the scripture, our our fellowship with one another? Although the word koinonia isn't in this passage, the content of what it means to be a partnership in the gospel is Jude gives us instructions for contending for the faith so we're called to strive together in the faith and this passage links back to his instruction earlier in Jude when he tells us to contend for the faith remember he gives the instruction contend for the faith and he says why because people have crept in unnoticed who are distorting the grace of God Then in verses 5 through 16, he goes on to elaborate on who who those ungodly people are. And now in verses 17 to 23, he elaborates more on what it means to contend for the faith. But before we get to that, I want us, I I, I enjoyed what Lindsay did because he couched our, uh, our need to do certain things in the fact that God has already done something. We are loved in God because of what God has done, not because of what we do. This passage focuses on our need to strive together for the faith. But even that, even our Christian fellowship, our koinonia, isn't something that we do or have to strive to create. It's something that God has done and is doing in Christ Jesus. I was reminded of that when I was reading some quotes by Dietrich Bonhoeffer recently in his book, Life Together. Listen to what he says. Christian community is like the Christian's sanctification. It is a gift of God, which we cannot claim. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship, of our sanctification. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Just as the Christian should not be constantly feeling his spiritual pulse, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to be constantly taking its temperature. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. And from that, I just want to tell you, I don't say it often enough, I am so thankful to be your pastor. It is grace upon grace. Everything that we have as a Christian community is grace upon grace. Let us be a thankful people for what God has given us. Let's pray together. 
Dear God, we pray that you would be with us in this time. As we study your word, please grow us into your image. Shape us into who you want us to be. Form us into the community that you are building us into. Make us into this spiritual temple which is being built up in which you dwell. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I didn't mean to get all choked up on you. I won't do that again, okay? (laughs) The main point of our sermon this morning, in order for us to contend for the faith, we must remember, remember the word of the apostles, remain in the love of God, and rescue those who are being led astray. Those three aspects of contending for the faith will be the main points of the sermon. So we must remember the word of the apostles, remain in the love of God, and rescue those who are led astray. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this first, uh, this first point, really because verses 5 through 16 is reminding us of the word of the apostles, particularly about these false teachers, these ungodly people. That's what Jude has in mind. Remember the word of the, the apostles. They predicted in the last times these ungodly people would come and seek to lead you astray. Don't be naive about the opposition you will face. Know that in the last times, did you realize we're living in the last times according to what the scripture says? We are living in the last times. And therefore, all the more as the day of the Lord approaches, we need to be on guard against being led astray ourselves in our life and our doctrine. Remember the word of the apostles. Remain steadfast to the word of the apostles as we are in the last days. This is our source of authority. Why do they have authority? Because of the one who sent them. They are the ones sent out by our Lord Jesus Christ who have given us his word, the the, the faith handed down to the saints. This is what we must hold fast to. If I seem a little disjointed, it's because I'm skipping a lot of what I had for this first point. I realized I had about three or four sermons in this sermon this morning, so I'm going to move ahead to our second point. So first, we must remember the word of the apostles, holding fast to that as we are in the last days. Second, we must remain in the love of God. Notice this in verses 20 and 21. There are four instructions given in these verses, but only one of them is the main verb. That's found in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I take the other verbs, which are really participles, in verses 20 and 21 as modifying this main verb. So they point back to how you remain in the love of God. How do you do that? By building yourselves up in the holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, and by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So for a moment, though, let's consider this command to keep yourselves in the love of God. Maybe you hear two echoes in these words. First echo is from the book of Jude. Different words are used here, but they both have the the same meaning. To keep or to guard yourselves, verse 1, to those kept for Jesus Christ. And then look ahead to next week's passage. To Him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. This command to keep ourselves in the love of God is grounded in the fact that we are loved in God the Father through Jesus Christ and that we are kept by 
his power, by his ability. We are sustained by God. The second echo is from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then he says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We see then that remaining in the love of Jesus has to do with keeping His commandments. And then we we think, well, then it all depends on me keeping His commandments. But then in the next chapter, what does Jesus do? He promises His disciples that if He goes away, He will send the Helper. He will send the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit within His people to enable them to obey His commandments, to guide them in all truth. And then in chapter 17, He prays to the Father. He asks the Father to keep them just as He has kept them. So it again goes back to God's power, His keeping of His people. He prays not only for His disciples, but also all who would believe in Him through their word. And listen to what Jesus said, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So you see then that this command to keep ourselves in the love of God is couched in the truth that God himself is guarding us and keeping us, that Jesus prayed to the Father, keep them in us. You think Jesus has power in his prayers? Do you think the Lord, the Father, hears Jesus when he prays? Well, we can be absolutely sure then that God has not only heard the prayers of his son Jesus in this, but that he will be faithful to keep them. He will be faithful to keep his people. But it does include effort on our part. I don't want to use this grounding to then get rid of or ignore any effort that we must put into remaining in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Remain in right relationship to Him through faith working itself out in love and obedience. Let's consider then how Jude says we are to remain in God's love. These, these participles, these, they're really, you could consider them commands in some ways, but pointing back to remaining in the love of God. First, by building yourselves up in your holy faith. It is the holy faith because it is set apart. It is characterized by a holiness of life in contrast to these ungodly people. You notice, as Lindsay said twice, he says, but you, beloved. There's a contrast between the ungodly and those who are loved in God. It is characterized by holiness. Jude, notice, also uses this metaphor of building. Build yourselves up in the holy faith. And so this frames these instructions too as instructions not merely to individuals, but to a community, to a church, to a fellowship. Keeping yourselves in the love of God is a community project. It's not just your sole responsibility. It's not just you and Jesus. 
We are being built into a spiritual temple in which God dwells. And we are active in building that temple up as God builds it through us. He has arranged the church just how he has seen fit. And he's given us gifts to build one another up in the faith. But I imagine that we all have this temptation or this tendency to begin to think of this Christian thing as a solitary pursuit. It's just me and Jesus. I can build myself up in the faith. We read this verse, build yourselves up in the faith, and we think, what can I do to build myself up in the faith? How can I be built up in the faith? This is not what Jude's talking about. Now, of course, we do uh, have a responsibility for our own prayer and reading of Scripture and meditating upon the Word, but this is a community project. We have the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word, the sacraments and the prayers, and God uses things week in and week out to build His church into this spiritual temple, which is holy to the Lord. We probably don't give enough credit to the ordinary means of grace in our own sanctification. I want to I highlight that in our culture, which diminishes these ordinary things. I want to highlight these things that God has promised He will use to grow His people. But there is more as well. Imagine you are a part of a building crew and your job as a group is to build a house. You have certain gifts and abilities you've been given that can be used and are needed for building up that building together. And let's say you show up just one time each week and you watch four or five others work. You don't actually participate, but you show up. You're there at the building project, once a week. But can you imagine how long it would take to build that house? They don't do it like that around our area. They sling them up quickly, right? And once it was built, it would be missing some key components because you weren't contributing with your particular gifts for the work. Well, in the same way, we can't expect that this house of the Lord, the church, will be built effectively if we only show up and watch others do the work. Or if we just show up once a week. In other words, the building up of this building takes some effort on our part. Some initiative on our part. Checking in on one another. Outside of the planned meetings. Reading the Bible with another. Praying with one another in coffee shops, in homes, in ten minutes. For ten minutes after work on your way home. Investing in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us remain in the love of God by this spiritual act of building one another up in the faith. You may not know, how how can I contribute? I'm shy or I don't really put myself out there much. It could be something as simple as just sending a card to someone that begins developing that relationship where you begin reading the scripture with a brother or sister in Christ. Second, there's praying in the Holy Spirit. He says, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, not simply an individual pursuit. We read this and we think, how can I pray in the Holy Spirit? Praying together in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? I don't think he's referring to praying ecstatically or in tongues. I don't think it means being outwardly excited about, about what's going on. It doesn't necessarily exclude that, but I don't think that's at the heart of what Jude's talking about. So what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Sorry for all the sub points, but let me say three things quickly about praying in the Holy Spirit. 
First, I think it means a dependence upon the Holy Spirit in your prayers. A dependence upon the Holy Spirit in your prayers. I don't know if many of you know this, but Tom Mercer's granddaughter has been diagnosed with leukemia uh, a few weeks ago, maybe even more than that. And he, in talking with him, just seeing his faith in God in the midst of that storm has been really strengthening. But we talked about prayer, and he was talking about how you never really recognize just how dependent upon the Holy Spirit in your prayer you are until something like this hits you like a truck. Until you have, you have nothing to give. You don't know what to say. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying recognizing your dependence upon the Holy Spirit for everything that you have. Second, I think it means displaying fruit which is consistent with our prayers. Right? The false teachers said they had the Holy Spirit, but their deeds were contrary to the Spirit. And in the same way, if we pray wonderfully and beautifully, and it just encourages everybody by the words that we say and how beautifully we pray, but the fruit of our lives is wicked... That is not praying in the Holy Spirit. Third, praying in the Holy Spirit means that there is a warmth of relational fellowship and affection with God. There is a warmth in our relational affection with God. In Romans, Paul says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, what, the sons and daughters of God. And he says, it is by the spirit of adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. Prayer isn't just some ritual we observe. It is a personal communication with our Heavenly Father, the God Almighty Creator of the universe. And it includes a moving of the affections for God as our Father. This is the Spirit within us communicating with the Spirit of God, the Father Almighty. And this leads us to the third instruction related to keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We build up together, we pray together, and brothers and sisters, we're waiting together. We're waiting for something more grand and glorious than anything in this world. We're waiting together. And this sort of waiting isn't passive. Rather, it's an orientation of one's life around the return of Jesus Christ. It's not a bored waiting. This waiting includes longing. We, would call it, we could call it a worshipful waiting. So you know what some people do when they have to, to wait? Some people, you probably play on your phones, you're just bored, you're just trying to pass the time to get to the point where you, you've got to do something or you're waiting for somebody, they're always late, and so you're, you're just scrolling on your phone or you're reading a book. You know what sometimes people do when they wait? When they're waiting for something really important? Sometimes they sing as they wait. The husband sings a love song as he waits to see his bride again. The one who's far from home sings about the land that he misses. So you know the song by James Taylor, probably. He grew up in Carborough, North Carolina. But he was recording overseas, and he ended up in Spain for a while. And although he was surrounded by famous individuals, including the Beatles, he found himself homesick for North Carolina, 
aren't we all just homesick for North Carolina? (laughs) And that's when he wrote the song, Carolina in my mind. Now, North Carolina is a beautiful place. Personally, I think it is the best place in our country and maybe even the whole world. North Carolina is, um, I'm a little biased, can you tell? But I love hearing that song and singing along with it. Especially if I was far from home. I I do remember being in Africa longing to be back home with my family in my hometown. There was just this longing and waiting to be back. I love hearing this song and singing along with it. But let me tell you, it does not compare with being in the place where Jesus is. It doesn't compare with being in his presence. And if we can sing passionately about lovers and about lands, how can we not sing passionately about the one we're waiting for? The one we're waiting for, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how do you sing on Sunday mornings? Do you sing with that that waiting passion, that longing to be with Jesus? When we wait, we sing. How do you sing when you're alone? How do you sing when you're thinking about Jesus? being home with Jesus forever. We build together, we pray together, we wait with longing together. And this is how we will keep ourselves in the love of God until He comes. There's one last aspect of contending for the faith. We have to remember the words of the apostles, remain in the love of God, and we have to rescue those who are being led astray. The last command that He gives is have mercy on others. A part of what it means to contend for the faith is to contend on behalf of others. So Jude mentions three sorts of people on which we must show, on whom we must show mercy. First, there are those who doubt. Jude has in mind those who are wavering. The false teachers are beginning to have an influence on them, and Jude wants his hearers to have mercy on them. They're not in imminent danger, but you will. Pull them aside. These are those you would pull aside and gently and lovingly point out their errors. Brother, I'm concerned about you because you seem to be drifting away from the truth. Have mercy on them. Notice this is a mercy. We might not see it as such, but having a kind, loving brother or sister who will correct you for your good if they see you wandering is a gift from God. It is a mercy from God himself. Proverbs 26, 7, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Second, there are those who need to be saved by being snatched out of the fire. There are those who were once a part of the fellowship, those who once seemed firm in the faith, but now they are rushing headlong into error. And these false teachers are are pulling them into their seductive ways. And this calls for a more drastic response. He says, snatch them from the fire. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. I can imagine a family on a camping trip. They have the tent set up. The campfire is roaring. They're ready to roast marshmallows. And just then the dad spots his littlest one walking towards the fire. Now, what what does the dad do if he is going straight into the fire? He takes a more drastic step. He might grab him by the arm and snatch him out of the fire. In any other circumstance, it would look violent. It would look wrong for the dad to do that. But in this circumstance, he is saving his life. 
And it is a great mercy from God. Notice, the, as the danger grows, the intensity of the response grows for Jude. Have mercy on the one who doubts. Bring him aside. But the one who is rushing headlong into the fire, you need to snatch him. You need to snatch him out of the fire. Save him. Bonhoeffer again says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Third, Jude says, there are others to whom you must show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are those who have plunged into sin. They almost seem too far gone, but they need a certain mercy as well. However, this case is a little bit different. This is a case in which you yourself are being put in danger. Judah saying, don't overestimate your own strength. Don't overestimate your own ability to withstand the temptations that come to you as you are ministering to those who live in sin. You show the mercy you can, but you also maintain a proper fear of God. A fear of turning away from God. And notice that last statement, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So let me ask you a question. Do you hate sin? Do you hate it with a passion? You hate sin. That's what he's talking about. You hate, so, you hate sin so much, you can't even stand the shirt someone wore in which they were participating in sin. The image is worse than that, actually. The garment stained by the flesh probably refers to clothes stained by human excrement. I've changed my share of diapers, but if, if the baby's poop got all over the clothes, usually we would just throw them out. Don't get that near me. I don't want to touch that. Get it away from me. Hated having to deal with that. Do not let your love for the sinner negate your loathing of sin. Do you loathe sin or do you coddle it in your own life? Do you tolerate it? Jude says we ought to hate sin. So let me close with considering the answer to this question. How then do I grow in my hatred for sin? How do I grow in my hatred for sin? I could say many things, but I'll just keep it at two. One, examine its devastating consequences. Has sin ever resulted in anything good in your life? Are the lives of people you know? Hasn't it wrecked families? Hasn't it wrecked lives? There is nothing good from the fruit of sin. Just look at the consequences and you will want to hate it even more for the damage that is done to God's good creation and God's people. Consider what your sin did to Jesus Christ, the devastating effects upon him as he hung on the cross. This is what our sin did. And Jesus Christ did it, did it willingly so that you would be forgiven of the ugliness of your rebellion against God. This is the gospel, of course, that Christ died so you would be forgiven. 
But don't overlook the fact that our sin did this to him. This is the consequences of our sin. Examine those consequences. And second, to hate sin, to grow in your hatred of sin, grow in your love for God. You can't just, can't just well up in your heart a hatred for sin. Rather, you replace a former love, right? You once loved sin and the things of this world. You replace this former love with a better and greater love, which is love, the love of God. Knowing who he is, knowing his omnipotence, his power, his sovereignty, his greatness, his grace, that everything you have is grace upon grace through Jesus Christ. Know him. To know God is to love God. To really know God is to really begin to love him. And as you grow in your love for this God, you will hate the things that he hates. Sin will sicken you. Because you love God so much and you hate to see his glory diminished. Brothers and sisters, let us grow in our knowledge of and our love for our great God because he is worthy. Let's close by praying together.